0: Tonight, uh, again, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, we're going to start at verse number 12. And if you remember from last week, when we looked at... um, the first 11 verses, God had made a tremendous promise to Israel. We looked at uh, how this eventually points to Christ, uh, who uh, comes to deliver us from the bondage of sin and devil and the devil and misery and all of that. We looked at that last week. Uh, "Make straight and the desert a highway for our God." those stirring, beautiful words. and yet... Isaiah also knows, looking into the future, being a prophet of God, that Israel, the Church of God, the remnant, is going to go into exile. Uh, they are going to go through some very, very difficult times and some very hard times, so there will be the bottom of the, bo- bo- the lowest of the low, the bottom of the heap, slaves in a land of exile, no longer in their home. He sees this day coming. And now, with these promises, because God knows our weaknesses. That when we are overwhelmed with a sense of helplessness and loss and fear and lack of strength, our tendency is to look at idols, look at the strength of our own hands, to start to doubt whether God sees or whether God hears. And that's what this section is about. It's answering the question that we see in verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord. My just claim is passed over by my God. The complaint of God's people that we're being oppressed here, and God doesn't care, and God doesn't see. That's what this section is addressing, uh, beginning at verse number 12. So let's read it, beginning at verse number 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his Counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless." Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O, Isra- o Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is one of the most Elegant and beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. It's just, it's. From here through chapter 48, I've read it and meditated on it so many times. The words are so simple, and yet they just come alive in my soul. Here's all these beautiful images and imagery portraying who God is in comparison to the earth. And the purpose behind all of this is not so that we will cower behind an angry God and hope he doesn't hurt us, but so that we will trust him, trust his goodness and his grace and his mercy, for the point of all of this is God is, as he is described here, then if that is true, there is nothing that will hinder him from keeping his promises. The heart of Israel's confession is in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, this we speak uh, in theology terms of the simplicity of God, meaning that God is not composed of other things. He's not part goodness, part wisdom, part justice, part love all put together. But God is one simple spiritual being. In other words, there is no concept of goodness that is higher and other than God. God is good, and good is God. His attributes and his essence are the same thing. What this means for our comfort is that his words, his wisdom, his power, and his decree are not different things. They're one thing. So what he decrees takes place. What takes place, he knows, And what he knows is wise and perfect. And that's what Isaiah is expressing using all these beautiful figures of speech. For instance, look at the very beginning of this in verse number 12. He's measured the waters. Here I believe he's speaking about The the original creation, although it could be speaking about his providential care of all creation, the idea is, here's measuring. It's uh, measuring and weighing and balancing uh, with the smallest things. The span is between the thumb and the middle finger. All of the heavens, compared to the immensity of God, are a span. But not only that, it's measured carefully carefully. God created all of this. It's not just a random explosion. Everything is weighed out and measured in the exact proportions that God in his wisdom uh, declared it to be the reason that, well, first of all, if you examine creation, you know this and scientists know this, the one thing that everyone knows about creation is there are no random facts. There are things that we don't understand, but there's no such thing as random. The more we dig and the more we look and the more we find, we find everything in its perfect proportion. Just as Isaiah says here, the the heavens are measured, the mountains are weighed, the hills are weighed, the waters are measured, everything is perfectly in its place, because God did it. And God also knows, not only the measuring, not only indicates his providential, or his creation of the heavens originally, but also his providential care of all of it. He knows what it all is, because he created it to be. And so the very next section, when he's talking, he he switches the subject and talks about the knowledge of God. Who gave the spirit of the Lord wisdom? Who is going to say to God, why did you do things this way instead of that way? Or who is going to instruct God? The heart of who God is, one of his, when we talk about attributes, attributes simply means the What itness of God? Whenever you describe something, you describe it in terms of attributes. Uh, For instance, I'm I'm male, I'm human, I'm six feet tall, I have gray hair and blue eyes. Um, Those are all attributes. They all happen to be accidental attributes, which means that they're not my essence. They're simply things that are attached to me. The essence of me is a human created in God's image. Without that, I am not me. Everything about God is God. There's no accidental attributes in God. So when we talk about the attribute of knowledge, God's knowledge is not dependent upon his creation. If we want to know how many trees are on the property at First Reformed Church, we would have to go out and count them. I always forget, so I go out and count them and see how many are there. And if I had to do it right now, I'd have to think about it for a second. Because I didn't plant them, I didn't cause them to grow, I didn't decree them from before the foundation of the world. God did. He decreed them all. Every hair on my head is numbered, not because God counted them, but because His will decreed them. That's why not one can fall from my head. Jesus said, without the will of your Father in heaven. It isn't just that God knows which hair is falling out of your head because he catches it. It's that God has willed it. So everything from the movement of the stars, from the rising of the sun, to the movements of the moon, to the circle of the earth, to everything about all of creation is decreed by God and therefore known by God independently of his creation. What this means is when we're explaining things to God, he already knows. And therefore he hears us. But to take the pagan view of gods and, and all of this whole section up, up through chapter 48 is contrasting the true God with idols. The pagan view of God is that God is doesn't pay a lot of attention or there's barriers that are getting in the way of us and God. And we have to take some kind of control and some kind of power to convince God to listen to us, to explain the situation to him so that he understands it, to get him to think about the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel in the contest with Elijah, jumping up and down and cutting themselves and jumping up and down and cutting themselves, trying to get God's attention and in modern terms think about how this is on the um in so many of the churches that that uh, say if you buy this thing of prayer oil or if you buy this then that will force god to put a blessing on your home and put a blessing it's a pagan view of god as we're going to see god already knows who you are he knows you're his He loves you. He has nothing but good for you. There's nothing hindering him from giving that good to you. And therefore, as we see at the end, our goal is to wait. We, of course, being impatient creatures, want it faster. But the point is, God says everything in its time, because God has measured all of this out. So again, looking at verse 13 and 14, who taught let's just look at this one phrase, who taught God the path of justice we when we're oppressed, think about how Israel was in under the Babylonian captivity, put in chains and dragged for three months back to Babylon, a place they had no idea, they'd never been there before and had no concept of it. Think about that and what a weight that would have been on and crying out to the Lord day and night, this is unjust, there's no one to plead my cause, I'm being punished without a cause, I, the, the the government is oppressing me, those powerful than me are crushing me underfoot. Doesn't God care about justice? And this is the comfort, God cares far more about justice than even you do. Who taught God about justice? Justice is God. Justice is an attribute of God. Without justice, God is not God. But God is also wisdom and understanding, and he understands the entire thing from the beginning to the end. We do not God understands everything that is happening. We don't. Every time men get overwhelmed with a sense of we're going to bring justice, if there is no restraint, it always ends up to be a monstrous thing because our justice is always tempered with sin and the desire for vengeance, whereas God's justice is always perfect. That's the encouragement. And it's the same thing, not only with justice, but also with counsel, with justice, with knowledge, with understanding. God, understanding, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew because it's based on the word, it's, the root of the word is bane. Bane is a preposition that means between. It separates two objects. It's the space between this and that. Understanding means that you can tell the difference between this and that. That's the heart of understanding, it's being able to distinguish between good and evil, black and white, up and down. It's the heart of who God is. God distinguishes. We see this in his first activity in Genesis chapter 1. He separates the water from dry ground. He separates day from night. He separates up from down. He makes this distinction. And the question is, who teaches God these things? Of course, no one does. This is the heart of who God is. There's no concept of... Understanding that came first, and then God must submit to it. In other words, the universe is not orderly by chance. The universe is orderly because God is orderly. The universe is orderly because that's how God created it. And that reflects God's attribute of order. And therefore, now getting to the heart of it, in verse number 15 and 16, the nations are dropping the bucket. In verse number 15, he's comparing now all the nations. Israel is being oppressed on all sides, and it's going to get worse until they're taken into captivity. At the time of Isaiah's writing, Assyria was the dominant power. Uh, in Isaiah's day, they had completely conquered the northern kingdom. They had almost conquered the southern kingdom. They had taken over everything. You look at the map in Hezekiah's time of the Assyrian Empire and if they, the one I have is painted blue. The whole thing is blue and there's one little tiny white dot in the middle of it and that's Jerusalem. And Isaiah had just explained what had happened in Jerusalem in chapter 38 and 39. Uh, this was God's decree. One angel sent the entire Assyrian army back home and Jerusalem was spared because of the prayers of Hezekiah. Because The nations are a drop in the bucket. This means that the nations and the movements of uh, empires and the movements of kings and the movements of, in our day, elections and, and all of the machinations of what's going on in the world, this is a drop in the bucket with God. A drop doesn't change the weight of the bucket at all. The drop doesn't affect The bucket. And all of the nations, this is the point, all of the nations are as a drop in the bucket of God's providence. This doesn't mean that God has no care for the people of the earth. It's talking comparatively. Comparatively, God isn't going, oh my goodness, look at what those people are doing. What am I going to do now? God is independent in that sense of his creation his creation doesn't affect him we are dependent upon him he is not dependent upon us and therefore he's not in heaven just waiting that waiting for us to do the right thing so that he can bless us we depend on him not the other way around Not only that, in the next phrase is counted as small dust on the scales. You can get a little scale and you can weigh stuff out. And the dust, a little tiny speck of microscopic dust that's landing on the scale, doesn't change the weight of the scale. If you take all of the nations in the world... All the people in the world and all their loves and all their hates and all their decisions and all their shaking their fist at God and all their anger and all of that, it's one little tiny speck of dust on the scale of God's providence. Is this going to affect God's promise at all? And yet, what causes us the most grief grief and causes us so much anger and rage at people around us is when we're afraid that somehow people are going to get in the way of God blessing us. This was exactly what happened in the days of the Pharisees. They uh, they were concerned that the sinners were going to cause God to remove their blessing from the nation again. And so that's why they were so harsh on all the sinners. It's why Jesus had to go. They said, if we don't do something about him, the Romans are going to come and take our place in our nation. Behind that, it's God is going to punish us if we keep allowing sinners in our midst. But all of the nations are like a speck on the scale of God's promises. More on this. We're going to go through. There's more about God than simply this, because God is infinite. But this is the foundation of who God is. Verse 16. Here it's in contrast with the the reason that the pagans offer sacrifices. And this was... Israel's problem, too. Isaiah addresses it in chapter 1, right off the bat. Israel thought that if they offered impressive enough sacrifices, they could convince God to do what they wanted God to do. It's the same mistake that Saul made uh, the first king of Israel, that God uh, removed the kingdom from him. He waited and he waited and he waited and he waited while the Philistines were getting stronger and stronger and closer and closer until he was so afraid of the Philistines and he hadn't yet appeased God with a sacrifice. And so he offered the sacrifice to convince God to save him from the Philistines. And of course, right then Samuel shows up, says Saul, you're thinking like a pagan. I would have preserved your kingdom forever, but now I'm taking it from you. Saul didn't have to convince God to save him from the Philistines. The sacrifices were not for God's benefit. God said, if, if I was hungry, would I tell you? The cattle on a thousand hills are all mine. That's Psalm number 50. Sacrifices are not so that we can convince God to do something for us. And so the next phrase is, all of the trees at Lebanon... And if that all burned and every beast in the forest was offered as a sacrifice to God, would that change God's view? Because the pagan idea is you've got a king over here and you've got a king over here and both of them offer sacrifices to their God and whichever God is stronger at that particular moment is the one going to win the battle. And so we better get God on our side really, really fast. And we better get him fattened up to go to battle against this God. But that isn't the God of the Bible. There's only one God. And he has made promises to his people. He will redeem his people. He will keep all of his promises, as we're going to see. He does respond, but in a way that's beyond our comprehension. God not only determines the end, our salvation, he also determines the means. That's a whole other story. But first we have to have this foundation down, that God is not manipulated by sacrifices, by religious services. When we go to church on Sunday, when we sit in the preaching of the word, we sing our hymns to God, when we give our offerings to support the ministry, all the works of religion that we do, it's for our benefit not to convince God to give us a blessing, but because God has adopted and redeemed us in Jesus Christ, and we are his children. That makes all the difference in the world. Because, verse 17, all the nations before him are nothing, less than nothing. You add them all up together, you get a negative balance. So don't be afraid when you hear the great kings of the earth blaspheme against God. They're not taking God by surprise. They're not threatening God. And is God going to respond? Of course he will. But that's going to come from his nature, not from them. Um, So now he's comparing in verse 18, 19, and 20. This is really interesting. He's comparing the idols of the heathen to the one true God. The heart of it is to make an idol the craftsman has to make an idol. So right there, you see the contrast. God made us. We didn't make God. The difference between a pagan way of thinking is we make the gods. We make these there's nobody that believed that this carved image of Marduk was actually the god Marduk. What they believed is through this image, they captured the power of Marduk and could get Marduk to do what they wanted him to do. If they were rich enough, they formed it out of gold and out of silver. If they were too poor, they made it out of wood. And so the quality of the god depended upon the wealth of the offerer. This is very different than the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, as we see at the end of this chapter, he has care for the weak, for the oppressed, for the grain of seed that falls into the ground and dies. He delights to show himself strong in weakness and in affliction. The... um, The verse that always comes to mind when I think of this is God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. The word humble in the Old Testament is the same word for afflicted, weak, or poor. It's all the same word. It's anah in the Hebrew. So to be poor, you have no resources. To be afflicted is to be crushed under, under foot because the rich always took advantage of the poor and the poor had no resources. So to be poor, to be afflicted, to be oppressed was all the same thing. You were weak. You had no resources. You had no way to protect yourself. This is what humble meant. This is why a woman who was sexually assaulted, the scripture said that they humbled her. She had no strength to fight back. That's once again another story. But throughout scripture, God has a great care for the humble. And whatever resources God has given us, we are to humble ourselves under his hand, as we see here. The pagan view is we make ourselves strong And we can capture the power of the gods by doing everything right, by offering a big enough sacrifice, a fancy enough sacrifice, by doing everything right, by saying the right mantra, by doing the right rituals. And if we follow all the steps right, then we can wring a blessing out of God's hands. The Spirit lives on today when you go into any Christian or spiritual bookstore and you find seven steps to this, ten steps for that, eight steps for this. Here's all the things that you have to do to get a blessing from God. Whereas the Scripture says, it is God that blesses us. We receive it from His hand. We're going to see this contrast in the very last two verses. So hold that thought for just a minute, then you'll see exactly what I'm saying. In the meantime, while if you look at the end of verse number 20... All of these, whether they're building it out of wood and hopefully finding a tree that won't rot, or they're building it out of gold and silver, their goal is to get it fastened down so that it isn't going to get blown over by the wind or stolen by somebody passing through. Isaiah is going to use a lot of mockery moving on. He's like, now think about this for a second. Your goal is to make a god and then try to keep the god safe and protect the God from falling over. How is this God going to save you when you have to save it from falling over? Does that make any sense? And yet today, what do we put our trust in? We put our trust in how much money is in our bank account. And so we're terrified all the time that the bank's going to get stolen, the stock market's going to crash, the wrong guy's going to get elected president, the gas prices are going to go up, and everything's going to fall to pieces, and everything's going to... What kind of a God is money when it's so tenuous? And hasn't God promised that he's going to provide all of our needs? He's going to give us this day our daily bread? And so he says in verse 21, Have you not known? He's talking to the people of God. These are things that you should know. Don't you know this? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? From the very beginning, just go outside and look at the stars. Now think about this. The God that you serve knows the names of all of those stars because he named them. Now, we know that the stars that we can see are too much for us to know. We name some of them. But the more we discover and the more we look at the universe, the more we realize just how exactly majestic and huge and enormous that universe is and how many stars, they are literally innumerable. They are beyond the human mind to comprehend. It's a span to God. He gives all of their names. He sits above the circle of the earth. There's a figure for you. He stretches out the heavens like his... The, the figure of speech is the, um, the awning that would go over the, the Middle Eastern patio. You pull the awning over to shade your porch. This is the heavens to God. The heavens is everything that up. Look up again and look at the immensity of the sky and the beauty of the stars and everything that the blueness of the sky during the day. This is all of God's handiwork. It's God that stretches us out. Do we have a God that we have to protect from falling over? And then he says, now think about the princes compared to that. The princes, the noblemen, all these people that we're so afraid of. He makes the judges of the earth useless. When it's time, God will blow on them. What this means is that all of the kings of the earth serve God's purpose. And when God is done with that purpose, he blows on them and they're gone. Verse 24, he will blow on them and there they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away. These people that we so fear. And so he says, so who are you going to liken me to? And then he goes on he looks at the the beauty of or he once again talks about the greatness of God this what he's describing here the theologians the term that we use is his inf- infinite power infinite might his infinity these are we call these negative attributes because there's nothing in creation that compares to it. Like God says, "Well, who are you going to liken me to?" Um, you cannot exhaust who God is. The, His attribute of infinite is not finite. We don't have a positive word for it. Is for it because everything we know is finite. There's no such thing as infinite. In order for us to know something, it has to have a beginning and an end. We can't fathom pure infinity. We can't fathom the immensity of God where he has no beginning and no end with regard to space and no beginning and no end with regard to time. His infinity also means that he doesn't have a succession of moments. He doesn't have a before and after, a today and tomorrow. It's all an eternal present and yet eternity and God are not two different concepts, they're one thing God is infinite with regard to space, his knowledge is infinite, his his understanding is infinite and therefore nothing can be compared to this God and so why are you going to say he doesn't know what's going on in your life That's the astounding thing. Why are you going to say he doesn't care? Why are you going to say he's not paying attention? He's out of control. Is he falling asleep? He's upholding all of the heavens. Don't you think he can uphold you? Because he says he upholds you. If he knows all the stars by name and he says, I know your name, doesn't he know your name? Because his, verse 28, his understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak. And so when you are at your weakest, at your lowest, at your smallest ebb, this is when God delights to work. Paul testified of this way in the future in the New Testament when he says God as in my weakness, God has shown himself strong. He said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so God didn't remove the thorn in Paul's flesh because God wanted to show his strength through Paul's weakness. We get a glimpse of this with Gideon in the book of Judges. When God whittled down his army to 300 people, he says, because I know you. If you go in with this full army and I give you the victory, you're going to say, oh, I did it because I was strong. And how often do we pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, I sure accomplished that because I'm smart, I'm wise, I'm strong, I've got a lot of money. But in our weak place, weakest spot, when we're weak, when we're hurting, when we're tired, when we're anxious, when we're trembling, when we're fearful, when we're sinful, when we're oppressed... When all of this is crushing in on us, and then God delivers us, the only thing we can do is respond with praise. That's where God. Brought, that's where God brings us. And so, what do we do? Verse thirty and thirty-one. There's still a contrast here. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. This is human strength. The word youth there is. Uh, um, The root of the word is chosen, a choice young man. This is when the king goes through and gets the best looking, healthiest, strongest, smartest, wisest, most powerful young man. I want that guy, I want that guy, I want that guy. Think of the army boot camp guy picking out the people for the elite forces and putting them through that rigorous training. Those are the ones here. Those youths, these people, even then, eventually they're going to get tired. The idea is this, if you have to keep your God from tottering, it's going to exhaust you and bring you down to nothing, and you will fail. Whatever that God is, if you've got to uphold that God, it's going to exhaust you, because God, whatever that God is, the true God blows on it, and it goes away, and then you're left with nothing. The use will fail. The young men shall utterly fall. But then look at the next one, and here's the beauty of this. Those that wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. All the commentaries I've read on this, I think, have missed the point. And all of the, everything I thought about this when I was growing up, this was, of course, the motto of the Christian school that I was brought up in. It was painted on our gymnasium. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. In other words, because we were a Christian school, we were apparently better at basketball than the the unbelievers. And I can testify that we were not. Um, But anyway, it wasn't until I actually watched David Attenborough because I love nature shows, and I watched a David Attenborough special on Birds of Prey, and he had in that clip about a five-minute segment on the eagle that goes right over the Middle East, and he didn't reference this. He was just talking about the Middle East. There's only one eagle in the Middle East that you can see. It doesn't land anywhere near Israel, according to Attenborough, but if you're in the Middle East in Israel and you look up, you can see this eagle... Way, way, way up as a tiny speck in the sky. And here's the amazing thing about this eagle. This eagle migrates about 3,500 miles without ever stopping. And so the question that scientists have is, how on earth can an eagle do this? And it's not just this one, it's all eagles. How do they do it? Any bird that flaps its wings like this will get... So exhausted, it will eventually crash and can't make it. The birds that soar 3,500 miles spread their wings and catch the wind. And then they just glide on the wind. Now think about that, the example that Isaiah is using. Those that wait on the Lord. In other words, spread your wings and catch the wind. Quit trying to do this on your own strength. God said to Zechariah, Not by might and not by power, not by wisdom, but my spirit, says the Lord. It's God's promise, his word of promise, the spirit of promise. Remember, spirit, wind, and breath, all the same word. The same breath of God that blows the idols flat is that breath that upholds his people so that we can soar. But we wait on the Lord. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way to wait. So put this in the context of Isaiah, uh, the 70 year of exile. Here's the nation of Israel. They know because the prophets have said you're going to be in exile for 70 years. The prophets said, here's what you do. Build houses get married raise your kids obey the law of god and wait and wait those that wait on the lord will soar and they'll eventually be brought back to the land and they're going to learn what it means to rest they're going to learn about peace eventually it's going to come. When we see Jesus face to face, there's a new heavens and a new earth, then we'll know the beauty of rest. But if we spend our whole life trying to keep God from tottering down, trying to hold him up, trying to force a blessing out of him, trying to offer bigger and better sacrifices to make ourselves more worthy, thinking to ourselves If I only did more, then maybe God would love me. If I only worked harder, then maybe God will give me a blessing. If only I struggled more. If only I got up earlier and did bigger devotions and better devotions, then perhaps God will start blessing me in my life. Even the youths are going to fail. That's going to exhaust you. Therapist's office are full of people that are exhausted from there. The spiritual answer is, Spread your wings. Catch the wind. Let God lift you up by his promises. God is going to bring it to pass. God will lift you up. We're going to talk more about this as we go all the way through these idols, uh, from the next, all the way through chapter 48, and then we're going to meet the servant of the Lord. It's some beautiful stuff coming up. Uh, With that, we will close. Uh, If you would like to, let's close in prayer, and then if you'd like to unmute and ask any questions, we can do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a beautiful thing it is that you uphold us, that you direct us, that you, uh, you love us, and we are your children, and nothing will remove us from your hand. Cause us now, Father, to rest in that with the choices that we make, the decisions we make every day, our ins and our outs, to know that you uphold us and you keep us with all that we do. And so we can go to work and do all of those things, not to squeeze a favor out of you, but because you've called us to, and so we can do it with joy. Teach us, Father, that you accept our works in Christ, and so we can serve you with joy, not wearing ourselves out, but catching the breeze so that we can soar. In Jesus' name, amen.